the next episode of Nerd Flicks and Chill will start in three, two, one, zero. Hey everybody, this is Nick. And this is Carrie. And we are Nerd Flicks and Chill, and in this podcast we are going to cover Watchmen's third episode, She Was Killed by Space Junk. I'm so happy we're talking about this series. Me too, because there's not much coming out anytime <laughs> soon. But I will say this. This is like the first piece of entertainment that I've taken in in like five days that is not Hamilton related. Oh, yeah. I've... Oh, let's see. With Watchmen, I am now on my third series rewatch, and I'm totally okay with that. Um, Hamilton, I think I've watched it... I think I've watched it four times. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's good to have it's good to have Watchmen and Hamilton. It's very exciting and it makes me happy. Uh there's not much else right now, so <laughs> no. maybe we'll do a show on Hamilton too. That would be fun. So, this episode, I don't know that it is necessarily as uh rich with clues and um foreshadowing in the way that the other ones have been but there are a lot of really cool bits to talk about in this particular episode yeah i would agree although there is some foreshadowing in this one though mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there totally and is this one also does the same thing that the other episodes have done where the opening images are somewhat similar to or kind of uh bookended uh, by the closing images. Mm-hmm. So in this one, you know, we have the Dr. Manhattan phone bank that she's in. And then at the end, she emerges from that phone bank. And, uh, you know, that's where the, the car falls. So it is kind of tied together pretty nicely there. And I do love how her joke or her conversation, one-sided conversation in that phone booth is just laced throughout the entire episode. I love yeah. how that was presented. Yeah, I agree. I thought that one was really, really good. Um, we get introduced to Lori Blake, uh, who is Silk Spectre from the original comic. She shows up here working for the FBI. A lot of really cool backstory provided by her, mm-hmm. um, for her. I like when we first see her, her jacket almost has kind of a cape look to it. Oh, I thought that that's was a kind good, of awesome. That's a good observation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also we, we have, what I think the name was the Revenger, the superhero, the vigilante who she takes out in that setup, in that sting operation. Yeah, there was a mention of um, when a senator comes to visit her, he mentioned, was he mentioned, I think it was the shadow or something first. And she was like, no, 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 that was that was last week. This today was the Revenger, I think is. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, but it might have been flipped, very- but. I don't remember. It was very Batmanish. The guy you'll notice even had yes. kind of a raspy Batman style voice. Yeah. And in that later scene, Keen talks to her about rich assholes dressing up as vigilantes. Yeah. So it is a little bit of um maybe maybe it's just a subtle wink towards Batman a little bit. Well, yeah, but I mean, but also within Watchmen as well, because Vite is kind of that way too. Yeah, and this is another superhero crashing through a window. Superheroes and windows, they are all over the series. Yeah, very much so. Superheroes hate glass. Can we also talk about the senator's name? Sure. Joe Keen, like joking, like I'm just joking. Hmm, interesting. Anyway. (laughs) Good stuff. (laughs) 
Thanks. <laughs> so one of the other interesting aspects about this setup that they're doing for Blake is that um, she, of course, is the daughter of the comedian. And now at this stage of her life, she has adopted kind of the cynical wit and joking style Ugh. of her father. I love the writing for her character so much. And then paired up with the way that it's delivered. I just kept thinking the whole time, oh my gosh, what an amazingly meaty role for an actress to have. Yeah. Because she tears it up every scene that she's in. And I love her delivery of these amazingly written lines because there are moments where you are on her side and then there's other moments where she's just like, she gets under your skin and she's just is just annoying and it's like you don't know whether you should be rooting for her or against her and i love that dynamic with her character yeah she is she is a really great character she's um i don't know i i think that if you know of the watchman comic you know her backstory but if you are new to it if you are somebody who came into watchmen new and didn't know the backstory i think it really sets up maybe um a way to get you kind of interested in going back and digging into her backstory more well i will say that i think i mentioned this when we first started talking about this that i had i saw the movie and i very loosely knew about the comics just because of the movie and when she came on, the name didn't ring a bell to me because it had been a really long time since I had watched the movie, which I'm really curious to go back and watch the movie after seeing this um, and seeing if I feel differently about it because I didn't like it the first time I saw it. But um, it didn't ring a bell to me. So I didn't know who it was. And it wasn't until things were revealed along through the series. So it was almost like. I don't know, a gotcha moment or something that I, I love that her name alone and the clues around it are great for people that are familiar, but they don't keep it an inside, an insider thing. They let those of us that didn't know in on it too later. Right. And I, and I love that because I hate things like, um, uh, first thing that comes to mind is the series, the witcher. For example, when I was watching it, I'd never played the games. I didn't read the books. I'm watching the series for the first time. And I felt like there was something that I was missing out on. Like I felt it's like, you know, I understand that there's a lot of references to things and it's very fast paced and people that are familiar with it are going to be able to follow along with that. But for those of us that are new, it's like, let me in on the joke. Let me in on the story. I want to be a part of this, too. And it was kind of I kind of felt like, you know what? This is just for us. This isn't for you. And this this Watchmen series doesn't do that. It includes everybody. And I love that about it. It lets me be a part of it, too. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, I wanted to jump back to that scene where she is in her home... You know, she has Devo on her CD player, the song Space Junk. Which is where the title of this episode comes from. Sure does, yeah. We also <laughs> learned that she has a pet owl named Who. Which is a lovely um, 
nod to the comics as well. I did a little bit of digging um, mm-hmm. to get some more information on her. And the comics kind of left off with her um, being in a relationship with a character whose alter ego was an owl. Right, yeah, Night, night Owl. owl. Mm-hmm. Not the only Night Owl reference in uh, this episode or even in this scene, too. Yeah, there's some really cool imagery that they do uh, yeah. with her, the way um, some things are shot. And yes, I know you're going to get to it, but like, there's a really interesting line that I did not pick up on the first three times that I heard it until I went <laughs> back and read a little bit more about her character. And then it made sense. But that scene where um, she's in her home, there's a few little bits just wanted to talk about. There's that kind of like Pulp Fiction-y moment with the suitcase where like in Pulp Fiction where Travolta opens it. Mm. It looks like the combination was about to be 666, but it almost kind of cuts off. Yeah. Which was what the combination was in Pulp Fiction too. So we see her looking inside the suitcase, the briefcase. We don't know what's in there till the end. Spoiler alert. It's a giant dildo. Um, but she's illuminated with this blue light yes. when it opens. And that's how it was in Pulp Fiction, too, where it was just what whatever it was that was in the case is just this glow. <laughs> right. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting little wink towards the Pulp Fiction universe there. But Joe Keen says something really... Is Pulp Fiction a universe? I don't know. It's not. Maybe. Stop using that for things. The- the the Pulp Fiction film, <laughs> yeah, um, the the mind of Quentin Tarantino, yeah. Uh, Joe Keen has a line where he says that masks save lives. My reputation depends on it, mm. which is kind of um, an homage to kind of not an homage, just kind of foreshadowing Joe Keen's identity a little bit. Yeah, a little bit because he himself wears a mask. That that is a uh, multi-layered line. There. Yeah, like his whole persona is a mask of sorts. Yeah, pretty much. And his name. You know, yeah, and he's <laughs> gonna send. Um, he's gonna send Blake to Tulsa to look into the Judd Crawford thing, and he entices her by saying that you know if he becomes president, he'll have pardon power. He could even get her owl out of that cage. Yes. The line I was Which, referring to earlier. Yeah, it's yeah. a reference to Night Owl for some reason being in prison. Right. And what is really interesting about this too, and, and I don't know because I haven't looked at a lot of the supplemental stuff. I've I've heard some things about it and seen a couple of things, but it seems like Night Owl and Silk Spectre were captured by police. And he refused to cooperate, and I guess she did because she ended up with a job. But the thing that I also think is interesting about it is it, it appears as though law enforcement has taken Night Owl's tech and adapted it for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Like we see the owl ship in the first episode that the police right. are using. Yeah. Angela has the goggle. So it looks like some of that tech is being repurposed by the police, yeah. by law enforcement in general. Right. And it makes so me I wonder. That was interesting. It is. It, no, it is interesting, and it, it makes you wonder. Okay, so how necessarily did they get that tech? Did they get some of the information from her? Is it some of it from Night Owl? Like, is he being imprisoned, and part of his punishment, he has to share some information or something? I mean, I, we don't know. I I don't know. Yeah. 
I'm not sure. And I, the thing is, I don't know that we'll ever find out because it's really not the story. It's no, the it's aftermath not. of it. And I do like things like that, that we know that there is a history there, but we're not going to go into it because it's not necessarily what we're here for. Well, and I also think that sometimes when you are given every little detail, it's just not satisfying. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I'd like to be able to dive into every little detail of things, especially when mm-hmm. they are purposefully placed. But I don't know. Sometimes if, if you, you find out everything, it's just it's it's just not as interesting. It's it's so much more interesting to leave it ambiguous. Yeah, I am a little bit surprised that they didn't work Night Owl into it somehow. Yeah. Well, I... Because he's the only one missing from the show. Yeah. Well, I guess indirectly. We get all of his toys. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I That would be an interesting... That would be an interesting question for Damon Lindelof. It would. It would. If somebody hasn't asked it already, I'm sure we could find out. In fact, I'm going to do a search right now. <laughs> do it. Do it. Okay. So another scene that I wanted to talk about that I think is chock full of little cool details okay, is the FBI briefing, which, by the way, is the most unprofessional FBI briefing I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. Yes. Like, that is not how you conduct a briefing. At well, all. it is when it's on HBO. <laughs> it was just crazy. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there. One of the big reveals is that the Rorschach journal was published because that was a big piece of the Watchmen comic was how it kind of ends with him giving the, his, uh, you know, journal to a journalist. Mm-hmm. And then that we do find out that it was published. And in that journal is the kind of whole shebang about the squid attack being a hoax. So it's apparently been published and then adapted as kind of this new white supremacist manifesto. So I'm curious as to how that resonated socially. Was it just immediately within this world of Watchmen? Was it immediately just disbelieved by people as some sort of weird propaganda? Yeah, I don't I don't know how it makes that leap. I'm not sure. Um I sent you, did you look at the link that I sent you earlier before we started recording? Um, I had not had a chance to look at it. I did see it. It's called PDpedia. And yes. it's named that way because of Detective PD, who is the slideshow projectionist. I can't use my words, apparently. Um, <laughs> in the scene that we're talking about. Um in a few scenes later, we find out that he's a big fan of um, the Minutemen and this whole vigilante thing. Um, basically, this is information that he has compiled. And I think um, this was something... It's on the HBO.com website. Um, this was something that one of Damon Lindelof's series before uh, Lost used to do these... Um, companion sites and things to find and like Westworld has done as well. Um, 
I have not gone through and looked at everything that's there, but they are listed pretty much um, in a way that is episode by episode, that there's just little documents and little things that he has found. So there might be some stuff in there. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked at it fully. I know that you haven't. If somebody that's listening to this has, um, they can comment under this episode if you're listening to it at lrm.com it'd be kind of cool to see some comments about that um hopefully by the time we record our next episode maybe we will have gone through and found out some more information but i from what i've been told or from what i've been able to find out there is some stuff that kind of puts together gaps especially the gap of time between the original story and the series and that 30 was it 30 33 years or something gap between there's some mm. interesting, yeah, stuff in there. So maybe there might be some stuff on Rorschach in there. Interesting. We'll definitely yeah. have to check that out. Put a pin, stick a pin in it, as they yeah. say. There's also a line in this uh, briefing scene that I love, where basically it kind of gives a little bit of exposition if you hadn't already caught on. Effectively, there was the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921, and now, under Robert Redford's administration, it's the weirdest words I'll ever connect together, um, <laughs> maybe except for the current one, um, <laughs> under Robert Redford's administration, they have issued out reparations for those that are direct descendants of that attack. And that has also caused for a lot of people to move back to the Tulsa area, and now that community is thriving again. But what gets said in the briefing scene is just a sentence that I love because I think it underscores some of the racial, you know, the kind of racial tension that exists in America, the institutionalized racism. And I think they sum it up pretty perfectly with the one line where the guy giving the briefing says, you know how accommodating white folk are when black folks prosper. Mm, yeah. And I was like, wow, that is a really poignant statement about, you know, the, the racial tension that we see because there are so many times where we see it, even in little things, you know, when, um, I, there was a, a Fox News host who told LeBron James once to just shut up and dribble as if, you yeah. know, him being an athlete, uh, a successful athlete somehow makes him forfeit his citizenship and ability to speak out on social issues. There are these, there are these little, um, there are these little things, these little moments of kind of, uh, racial microaggression type things that maybe we don't see on the surface, but they are real and they exist and they're institutionalized. And for some reason, that line really jumped out to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's that white male fragility. And feel yeah. threatened easily. Yeah, and you know what? And, and Watchmen does paint a realistic depiction of, I think, what some people's responses would be if reparations were to be fully enacted. And that is kind of a debate that exists within the country. There are there are those who believe that it is now uh, it's far beyond time to start awarding reparations. And if that were to be the case, what would that look like for? white supremacists in this country and and how that would manifest itself in the kind of hostility that we're seeing in the show. So I think oh. the show is kind of depe depicting a future reality. Yeah. Oh my God. They would lose their fucking minds. 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just, it's interesting because, you know, here you have Angela and she's living in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. And then you, and, and you see this like trailer park, you know, of all these white people in this trashy trailer park. And they are livid that they feel that there are these people that didn't do anything to get where they are. And I know for a fact that there's people that will feel that way. And I actually think it was Ta-Nehisi Coates who was kind of consulting about how um, reparations could potentially work and what the social pushback would be. Um, in that case, I think he was one of the consultants that they that they sought out for that. Hmm. I remember reading that somewhere. Yeah, it's amazing just how incredibly dialed in this series is, and I think there's so much more of it that is just not that is necessarily just now coming to light because it's not, but it's just so much more apparent. In, in everything that's been going on, especially recently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we also have the conversation on the plane uh, with Petey and Blake. And we see Petey has a mask, which I thought was kind of funny. That was very funny. Because we, we do eventually see him put the mask on. A that was a little couple, bit of foreshadowing there. A couple times. Yeah. Yeah, um, when Blake finally gets to Tulsa and, you know, she sees Pirate Jenny and Red Scare and they're, you know, harassing that guy they got from the Nixonville again, she kind of introduces herself with a joke. Yeah. This kind of cynical sense of humor that she has. Yeah. So they've really done a great job establishing her. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, I don't remember if we talked about it last week. Did we talk about Nixonville and how it ties into Hoovervilles? Mm, I don't think so. So basically, the kind of Nixon loyalists who, you know, they're living in these things called Nixonvilles. Um, I think they are somewhat similar to Hoovervilles, which were popping up after the Great Depression. Um, they were basically little villages of poor quality man-made homes. Some were made out of cardboard. They were made out of whatever materials that people could find to build these little makeshift homes when they lost their homes in the Great Depression or during the Great Depression. No, we definitely did not talk about this. Yeah. So the Hoovervilles were, um, in some cases, the homes that people were living in were holes dug into the ground with tarps over them. Mm. They're basically these little shanty towns that were named after Hoover because Hoover took a lot of the blame for the, um, he, he had this kind of hands off approach, you know, uh, as far as programs needed to kind of come out of the depression and it just caused the stagnation and made things a lot worse. And so people moved into these little shanty towns and called them Hoovervilles. And now here we're seeing these Nixonvilles that are uh, looking somewhat similar. If things keep going the way they are here, we're going to have Trumpvilles. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Seriously. <laughs> anyway, 
moving on. That's a can of worms. It's shaking on the table, and I'm just going to shove it away. The flag for that community would just be a flaming dumpster. <laughs> yes. Just have a, an image of a flaming dumpster on the flag of their With the Confederate flag in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> And so we get that really great scene with her and Looking Glass. I really enjoyed that. Did you notice the way she calls everybody by this really dismissive nickname? Yeah. Like, she calls Night Owl, Owl Guy. She calls Vite, I think, Smart Guy. Um, Yes, yes. Manhattan is Blue Guy. Yeah. And then um, Looking Glass is Mirror Guy. Yeah. Just very simplistic. Yeah, I thought that was really uh, an interesting bit in there that she has these nicknames for them. But also in that scene, it's cool because in the pod, you get the sense that Looking Glass has control of every at all times in that thing. Because that's like his room, right? That's where he gets to do his thing. Yeah. And she comes in that room. She grabs the, the little remote and she puts him off. Yeah. Like, she really knocks him off of his balance, essentially. And there's a moment in there where he says to her, can I have the control back, please? He's asking for the remote, but within the scene, it's like he's asking for control of the situation. Yeah. Because he's so kind of knocked off of his feet and thrown, you know, out of rhythm by her. But it also shows that he does respect authority. He realizes that that she has authority over him because she's from the fbi right and so he's 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 reluctant and pauses heavily but he always gives in because he respects he respects her authority (laughs) (laughs) yeah he does i mean he's not somebody who seeks out authority or power right Right. And I think that's what makes him because I I feel like when you're watching the show, you are somewhat suspicious of him. Yes, very much. But I think that is the tell that he is not somebody necessarily to worry about. Yes, he does kind of betray Angela a little bit later on, but um, he's not a villainous character. No. And it was at the authority under the authority of somebody else that he did. And because... He weighed the pluses and minuses, and although he was betraying her, basically by doing that, he was saving her, too. Yeah. It was a double-edged sword kind of a thing. Catch-22, if you will. Yeah. Now, with the funeral uh, for Judd, I thought that was kind of interesting, because um, at that funeral, I can't remember the name of the cemetery, but it's, I think the translation is hell. Like, it's like a literal hell. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, ah, the name escapes me, but... I remember... I can picture the archway. It starts with a T, I believe. And I can picture the archway, and I can't remember what it, what it said. Yeah, I don't remember the... Um, <clears throat> I don't remember the name. That's going to frustrate me. <laughs> but we do have that funeral scene, which I really... I think is a really good scene. I love the ticking clock and how it builds tension. Very much so, yeah. And ever... Uh, presence throughout the series. It really is. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, when Angela is up there giving her eulogy, 
what did you think of um, the idea to sing that song? Because it kind of gives some stuff away. You think it gives some stuff away? Well, in a weird way, it kind of gives away something about Judd. Meaning the roundup. Yeah, the last roundup. Yeah. It, it Basically, the last line of that song refers to Custer. Mm. And the 7th Cavalry is basically named after Custer. Ah, I see what you're saying. Okay, okay. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like, it's all there for the characters kind of right in front of them, but they don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and same for us with the as the audience, too. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about, though, is like, how much of the murder of Judd Crawford has thrown all of the Seventh Cavalry's plans, you know, into turmoil? Right. Which I, I, I like this whole Keen thing. It, it's obviously it's such a ruse, but right. like for him to come up with it so quickly, I think really does underscore how opportunist um how much of an opportunist he is right well and uh, i don't know i guess in a sick way it's it's almost kind of impressive too because usually people that are of that mindset are so egotistical that they think that nothing will go wrong and everything will go perfectly and they don't typically come up with a plan b right so I mean, I guess that does go to show just how not only opportunist, but how smart he is, too, to a certain degree. So in this scene, essentially, Blake shoots this terrorist from the 7th Cavalry, and then Angela throws the, the you know, bomb into the grave, and then she throws the uh the casket onto the grave so judd crawford really gets blown to bits mm-hmm. which sets up a later joke about um her not being able to exhume the body blake do you think angela did that on purpose or is she just what? in protection mode there what push Put push the- judd's body onto that bomb so that it would explode thus making exhuming him impossible no, I don't think that was on her mind. I think it was to protect everybody that was there. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. I I don't know if that would have been on her mind. Just then and there, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. Um, but no, I think it was it was so quick that it was purely protection. Uh, we also get some stuff with Adrian Vite. Where we actually get the reveal of his name. They haven't said right. his name yet up to uh, this episode. Right. What do you think of the Vite stuff in this episode? <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I, I, I freaking love... It's like a mini-series within the series. Yeah. I love how it's kind of the cherry on top of the cake at the end of, um, you know, the first couple episodes. Um, I love them. And they always left me scratching my head wondering what the 
fuck is going on with this? And I know there was something that we talked about last week that's just so funny to go back and watch and think about that out of everything that happens in the series, when you go back and watch it, these sections are the ones that play straight. Like there's not necessarily, there's not any multiple layers or things to figure out and hidden clues. And like these ones, they're just, they're straight up. But when you first watch them, it's so confusing because it's like they give you nothing, but yet it's just this brilliant puzzle piece, the way that it's put together and unraveled throughout the entire series. is just so fucking brilliant. And I love them. And they are my favorite part as I'm going back and rewatching when it comes to these sections. I absolutely love it. But yeah, the first time I watched it, it was like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> it's true, right? Like, this one really is a bizarre oh my God. Um, set of circumstances. Because you're seeing him make something that first you think looks like a scuba suit, but then you find out it's like a spacesuit, and you're like, what? How is this going to work? You know, it is this really great... Um, I don't know. It's just this really great dreamlike. Well, at first, setting. actually, when you see him like tanning these hides or he's skinning these pigs, my first thought was that's how he makes these people. Is he's using these skins from these pigs? Ah, that's what I thought of at first, and then it was like, okay, and he's sewing it together. I'm thinking like, um, was it Buffalo Bill or whatever it was from like Silence yeah. of the Lambs? And I'm like, he's making a people suit. That's what I thought he was doing at first, and then it was like, oh no, it's not. It's a you know, it's a not a scuba suit. Now it's a space suit, but yeah, it's it's just woven so beautifully. I think they're a work of art on their own. I love it. Yeah, they so really are up. interesting. We also get introduced to the game warden when he's trying to get that additional suit. And it, essentially, it sets up this kind of adversarial thing. Mm -hmm. Now, knowing what we know and where this goes, what do you think is actually happening here? Knowing what we know, having watched all nine episodes, what is this telling us about his character? About the character of the game warden? Well, the character of Vite, actually. Oh, of Vite. Um, well, I mean, they set it up, they, they tell us later on that when he needed an adversary because he was getting too bored just being there. So the game warden is just doing what he's told. And Vite needs to have some kind of a drive. He needs to figure things out. Because if everything is just handed to him on a platter for somebody that 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 is that brilliant, it gets boring really fucking fast. I know because I'm speaking from experience in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, <laughs> that was random. Um, but for he needs to have that challenging adversary. He needs to have conflict. He needs to have something to work through. He needs to have something to figure out. And he needs to have it not be easy. So that's what I took from it. After having seen everything, um, yeah, he wasn't going to have anything happen easily. Yeah, there's a part of me that wonders if he is doing something not just for the sport of it, not just for the adversarial relationship, but like, is he doing it as a way to punish himself for the things that he's done? Po 
Possibly. That might be another side to it as well. And I think that's an interesting take. Like, he's setting up boundaries for himself, but he's setting up boundaries that on the surface seem pretty harsh. Right. But it just makes it that much more challenging to try and overcome it. Yeah, it's true. I do love the shots of, while we're seeing like his work area, I do love the shot that we see of the mini catapult. Yeah. That sets up the future catapult that he builds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like, what the hell is happening? I love the, I love these scenes. I love this one. We also get the cake indicating that it's the third year. I was yep. not paying attention in my first watch through to how many candles are on the cake. No, I, and there wasn't, other than that cake and the candles, there is no indication of time. Right. Because everything seems to be the same. And yeah, I, I didn't know, like, are these happening one day after another? Is this every month? Or, like, are these things, whatever they are, just so mindless, and it's something that they are in, like, a Groundhog Day, and it happens every day? Or what is the passage of time with these cakes? Um, Yeah, I didn't pick up on that until much later, either. Because it seemed so insignificant. Right. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, I, and it, now when I watch it, I'm like, how did I ever miss that? <laughs> well, and that's, you had said something about like that before. Maybe it was about the cakes. I'm not sure. Um, you had said something before and, and I still stand by what I said in response is that everything in these scenes is so bizarre. And you're trying to put together all these weird things that have happened that something like that is so simple right out there in the open, so brilliantly placed that, of course, you're not going to notice it. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. When we get back to the cemetery, uh, you know, you hear them interviewing Joe Keen, the media is, and he has a very, like, political line where he says... I'm not the hero here. And it's just like, yeah, that's true. We get it. You are not the hero. You are the villain. You are, <laughs> you have announced yourself as the villain in this episode, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we also get that scene with Sister Knight, uh, Angela, and um, Blake, which I really like. It's kind of a cool moment between these two because you get this sense of Blake trying to intimidate Angela mm-hmm. and Angela's just not having it. No. And so there's, I feel like there's this sense of respect that they have for each other because it's, it's just like what you're trying is not working. Right. And well, I mean, and that could be said from both of them to each other. Yeah. The whole thing where where Blake is like, yeah, I don't take you for a fainter. <laughs> right. Like this, like none of this works out. And then the same thing with uh, with Angela right back at her. It's like you're trying to intimidate me, and I'm totally not. And that's uh, again, it's just the writing for, um, well, for the whole show, I guess. But it's just you don't know whose side to be on. It's so interesting, and it's just so incredibly, incredibly dynamic. And um, the only thing, the only thing about this scene that I don't particularly care for is um, Angela's response, where she's like, "Oh, 
I, I don't know why. I think it was like sh- there needed to be something else or something more. And I, I honestly, I don't know what else. So I'm not giving a good criticism here because I always like to come up with some kind of a solution when I don't like something. But I don't know why. Anytime that I've seen it now, it just feels really weak to me for some reason. And and I don't think that she needed to come back with some kind of a wordy quip or something really long and involved. I don't know. There was just something, I don't know what it is. That was just like, oh, just kind See, of I didn't mind falls her like reaction. a dud to me. It just seemed kind of like a dud to me for some reason. Hmm. I don't know why. And then, of course, uh, this episode ends with the reveal of the, uh, the Dr. Manhattan dong, uh, that, that, that it could, looks like it could have been made by Apple. <laughs> Does it come with an app like, too? Maybe? Like if Apple came out with a vibrator, that's what it would look like. All right. It'd be like the, the eye dong. <laughs> Put me on the waiting list, please. <laughs> uh, of course, she doesn't use the eye dong because she goes and hooks up with Petey, but. You know, that's, uh, that's, I don't know, nothing else really to say about that scene. Yeah. Um, what is interesting, because this scene does wrap with, the episode does wrap with her in the, uh, booth. I kind of like the way these, there's these, like, weird Dr. Manhattan phone booths that people go to, and they're almost like prayer booths, right? Where they're offering yeah. up prayers to a god. Mm-hmm. And that does feel like a very modern way to, to do that, right? Like, I'm surprised there's not like a God app yet where you just, <laughs> there you know, might be. There might be. Send your messages. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. It, it, I thought that was a really interesting choice because if there was somebody who had godlike power on Earth, people would want to reach out to them and like having some weird Mars phone would do that. Nobody would believe it. They would think it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously her joke that she tells, she's basically talking about, you know, these people who are heroes, you know, ending up in hell. And then her being the little girl who throws the brick and, mm-hmm. you know, destroying God and God going to hell also. So I think that really kind of sets the stage for some of the choices that she is going to have to make. Mm-hmm. In you know for her character arc moving forward, uh, and then of course at the very end we get Angela's car falling back out of the sky in front of her, which I think most people <laughs> thought when they watched this the first time that that was Doctor Manhattan somehow doing that. Right, and I was just going to say it's so interesting because we think there's this massive payoff. And and Blake thinks so, too. She looks up and she sees Mars in the sky and it kind of twinkles. And, you know, after this had just happened and it's almost kind of like a setup for us as a viewer thinking, you know what? There's going to be some stuff that you think is going to be really important, but it's not going to mean what you think it means. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely kind of something that's designed to, like, throw you off the scent. Yeah. But I do like how this episode begins with her with her call in the the Dr. Manhattan phone booth, and then the episode ends with her leaving that phone booth and then the car falling. It, it, it seems like each episode is doing that, where the opening shot and the last shot are connected to each other. And I think that's a really cool bit of storytelling. 
It is. I'm going to have to pay attention to that in the remaining episodes as we go along. Yeah, there has been a little bit of that in each of the three episodes so far. Mm. So I think that's See if pretty it keeps going. Pretty cool. Yeah, you know, again, the show is just full of such great storytelling. So going back to what I had mentioned earlier in the episode, we were talking about all of the previous uh, characters, uh, Watchmen, Minutemen, that are now in this one. And we were talking about how Night Owl is not included. So I did look up um, and there was an interview with Damon Lindelof um, explaining that. And I have to say, it's not incredibly satisfying, <laughs> but it's basically like he he... In a nutshell, he says, we knew we were going to have Dr. Manhattan. We knew we were going to have Vite. We knew we were going to have Blake. And it was kind of like, he just didn't fit in. <laughs> it just didn't. I mean, it was very cut and dry. It was like, if we, it, um, it felt like if we added Dan, which is Night Owl's name. If we added Dan into the mix at the balance tipped too much towards the old and not enough towards the new. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it was kind of like. We knew who we definitely wanted in there and how it was going to all weave together. And that was just, it was too much. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, you're right though. It is not satisfying in the way that like, what, four is too many, but three is just enough. Like, that's a little strange. Right. And, but, um, so there is a little blurb at the end of this as well. And it refers to the PDpedia. Uh, that I mentioned as well. It is so weird, PDpedia. Um, that both Lori Blake and Dan, um, it's Dryberg. I'm not sure if that's how you say the name or not, got captured for resuming their vigilante activities. Only Lori was able to make a deal with the FBI to be released. So Dan remains in federal prison, prison until further notice. Ah. So there we go. Interesting. Mm hmm. So, Makes yeah, sense. I think I think we're going to have to go and explore the PDPedia after this. All right. Fantastic. See what's in there for the next episodes. Awesome. Well, that is our recap of Watchmen Episode 3. She was killed by Space Junk. We'd like to hear your thoughts on the episode, so hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at NerdflixChill. You can also check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. If you're listening on one of those platforms, throw us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. You can check out all of our new episodes at lrmonline.com. And while you're there, check out the network of podcasts. A lot of good stuff for you to listen to. We'll be back with another episode of uh, Watchmen that we're going to be recapping. And then maybe something else in between. Till next time, everybody. (laughs) Thanks for listening. May the force be with you because the night is dark and full of terrors.